I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Fried Egg Podcast. Uh, With us this morning, bright and early in uh, Florida here, and late at night in Australia, is Michael Clayton. Uh, Michael had a long playing career. Uh, He was a professional on both the Australian and European tours. Uh, He won a few times. And he has now become one of the game's uh, preeminent golf course architects uh, with his firm of OCCM. So, uh, Michael, uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Andy. I look forward to it. Yeah, I'd, uh, you know, I think the, it would be great if you could tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into golf, and, um, you know, so the reader or the listeners that don't know a ton about you can uh, get a little uh, info on you. Well, I grew up in Melbourne, which is the best city to play golf in Australia, as well as sandbelt courses. But I grew up on the other side of the city from the sandbelt. Really, I, my parents bought a house at the back of a place called Eastern Golf Club, which is now being dug up for housing. They're in the, they're in the midst of putting cutting roads through it and building houses on it. But I jumped the fence and started to caddy, and then I just started to play. And, you know, I got kind of went through the system there, I suppose, playing schoolboy golf and junior golf and amateur golf. And uh, Peter Thompson was from here, so I spent a lot of time watching him play. And I, uh, my interest in design, I suppose, was, you know, I grew up watching golf and playing golf a bit at Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath and Metropolitan and. Victoria saw all, all the great courses on the sandbelt, so it was really how it, how I got to where I am now, I suppose. But um, I started as a caddy, and I played, and I loved to play. It was like, you know, I guess you meet kids the same age, and you you just play golf all day every day. So that was what we did. Yeah, sounds a lot like my childhood. I um, I feel like for somebody, you know, everybody kind of has like an architectural enlightening when they play like a really really great golf course when you see like this is you know what golf is supposed to be like do you do you feel like that is kind of the case with you yeah i think i i saw well i I watched tournaments at royal melbourne before i played there so i i was aware that it was a really good golf course i wasn't probably aware quite how good but you know I, I started playing there in the, early, in the mid-70s I suppose I watched tournaments there in the early the World Cup was there in 1972 so so I you know I guess you instinctively know that it's a good course you, you read about it being a good course and golfers would come out Gary Player and, and Tom Weisskopf played that World Cup and they would come out and say what a great golf course it was and, 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 and you kind of I suppose you're aware that it's a special place, and then 
I watched Gary Player play at Kingston Heath in 1970. And so, you know, you're just around good golf. I, uh, most cities in Australia have one or two or three or four good courses, really good courses. But Melbourne's got Melbourne and the Mornington Peninsula probably has you know, 15 or 20. So, so it's really the centre of golf in Australia, really. So, so I was lucky enough to grow up in the middle of it. That's, it's interesting. I, you know, Australia and Melbourne, like on a, my short list for places to visit to, you know, just go on a, you know, golf binge. How would you, you know, having traveled the world and, you know, played so many of the great courses, how would you compare Melbourne to, say, like a, you know, New York and Long Island or, you know, a, a Scotland and Ireland? Like in terms of concentration of you know one of those you know metro areas. Well, the place I know best was London because I played in Europe for fifteen years and I lived we had a house about ten minutes down the road from Sunningdale for eight years. So that's the concentration of courses I know best. Mm-hmm. So if you threw the Heathland courses together with the Sandbelt, I think Royal Melbourne's the best course of, of anything, mm-hmm. and then. Kingston Heath's on a par with the old courses, Sangendale probably. But then if you ran out the next 10, I think you'd probably, they'd nearly all be the Heathland courses. Mm-hmm. So in terms of a concentration of golf, I would, you know, I think London's probably better. I mean, Swindley Forest and Sangendale and Walton Heath, uh, the, the Berkshire, Woking. There's, there's so many tremendous courses over there. You know, I wonder if it's a it's a bit of a case of familiarity breeding a bit of contempt in, in Australia because I know them so well. But you know, as, as a concentration of courses, I think I think London's pretty much unmatched. I, I've, I've played a little bit in New York. I mean, the, the National and Maidstone and Friars Head and Shinnecock and seen those courses up there, but not not so much in the city. But I mean, Pine Valley, Marion, I suppose, are quite a way away from New York. But um, for me, I always thought London was an amazing place to play golf. And not so far away, it's a place that people don't give any credit to, but Paris has got some fantastic golf. Saint-Germain, Fontainebleau, Montfontaine, Chantilly. So, so there were some tremendous courses in Paris. But, but And as a country, I think England is an extraordinary variety of golf courses, great links courses, the Heathland courses. I mean, places like Knotts and Ganton and or Woodley, uh, yeah, there's an amazing variety of golf in England in, in such a small space, really. I mean, compared with Australia and the United States, it's a tiny country, and you can kind of whip through England in sort of six or eight weeks and play tremendous golf from the you know the southwest corner up to the northeast. It's an amazing country for golf. Yeah, I, I just need to convince the fiancé that I uh, need a six- to eight-week um, work trip, right, out in England? Well, you can come to Melbourne for a couple of weeks and do Melbourne and Tasmania, which is really becoming the centre of great public course, uh, course golf in Australia with two new courses on King Island and just two courses at Bamboogle. And mm-hmm. So Tasmania is really taking off as a great, you know, a bit like Bandon and Cabot Links and, uh, and Sam Valley. Mike Kaiser's kind of remote golf in America. It's Tasmania's become a bit sort of that model in Australia where 
they're building courses on places that they're not hard to get to, but you, you, you've got to make an effort to get to them. And p- people are finding great land and building great golf, which is a good thing for the game down here. Mm-hmm. You guys have a project out there, correct? Well, we've got a maybe project in Hobart. Okay. There's a tremendous bit of land on a, on a spit spit of land. Really, it's a sand dunes and pine trees with water on three sides. Ten minutes from Hobart Airport, so, so Hobart's a decent sized city. I look at it might be the fifth or sixth or seventh biggest city in Australia. It's the capital of Tasmania, but um, I, th- I think that's more than likely to happen. So, so that's potentially a great project for us. Yeah, that that'd be cool. It's uh, I mean, there's so much good golf in the world that. So t- you know, I, I want to transition here into. Your playing career, um, you know, kind of came up through the Australian ranks as a great amateur player, um, and you hit the European tour and professional golf kind of in the in the eighties. Um, you know, you got obviously got to you know with the European tour and Australian tour travel the world and play some of the greatest places. But tell us a little bit about what life on the European tour was like in that time, and uh, you know kind of uh, a little bit about your playing career. Well, when I first started, it was top 60 were exempt. So you just went over there and you played Mondays. And if you made the cut, you kept going. So it was, it was, there was no way to plan what you were going to do like you can now. I mean, at the start of the year, you pretty much know now what you're in and what you're not. But over there, it was, it was a matter of making the cut and playing. And if you missed it, you went back to Monday. So... Uh, that, that was a. It wasn't much fun at the time, but I think it was a good system because I think if you if you kept playing well, you could keep going, and and make make the cut that way. So I I played a few tournaments in '82. Then I I just missed the top 60 in my fir- my first full year, and then I won a tournament early the next year. So I was kind of exempt the rest of my time. And then they went to a top 125 system in 1985, but. Um, back then, the tour really started in April and finished up in. We would come home in the middle of September. I mean, now obviously it goes all year because they did what was the obvious thing and they got outside of continental Europe and went to South Africa and the Middle East and now Australia and Asia. And so, so it's really become the world tour. Or, well, not the world tour, but a world tour. Uh, you know, it was a time when. I think, you know, the greatest privilege really was to play with Seve, you know, in his time. Because, I, I mean, for me, he was the he was the best player ever to watch play golf. He wasn't the best player, I don't think. I mean, you know, Nicholas and Tiger and those guys were clearly better players. But to watch someone play golf, there was no one like that. I don't know, he was the most charismatic. And, and, that, and it's an overused word, but... He was. I adored watching him play golf. He, he could hit incredible shots. He was great fun to watch. He was incredible theatre. So, so uh, I think all of his contemporaries. I mean, you know, the, the lower ranked players like like we like we all were sort of were in awe of how he played. But I think too, you know, if you spoke to Faldo or Langer or Sandy Lyle or Woozy or you know he, his real contemporaries, they would all tell you that he was the he was the main man and. You know, he, he was the first European to show that they could compete in America and play in America and win the Masters and 
win the Open Championship. And so, you know, playing in his time was really incredible. I, mean, I don't think there's anyone since who's, I mean, Roy's, you know, his own man and great to watch in his own way, but I don't think they'll ever be able, well, I suppose Palmer, I saw Palmer play when he was an old man really in the Open and or when, when I say old, I saw him play in the Open at uh, Muirfield in 87 and, and he played down here in Australia, sort of, he played at my club at Metropolitan in 1978, but, you know, for me, Savvy was the guy to watch, he was, he was incredible really, I thought. Do you, do you feel like in a certain way, I, I really think like, I, I think back to my my childhood and unfortunately I'm uh, too young to have like, you know, really seen Prime Seve. Um But, you know, Tiger Woods was, you know, the guy that led to, you know, kind of my generation and this golf explosion. Do, uh, do you feel like Seve kind of had that effect on the, on the world um, and, and in Europe, especially where, you know, he got, uh, you know, kind of led a, a surge in, you know, popularity of golf within, like, you know, younger generations? Well, he certainly did in Europe. I mean, he bought that tour lifely. It, it was a pretty staid tour, really centered around England. I mean, there, there, there were, I don't know, I mean, probably half the tournaments were in England. And, I mean, Tony Jackham was the big star, but he'd really gone to America and Booster Hoos went to America. So, so it was... You know, in the 70s, it was really, I mean, Bob Shearer and Jack Newton and the Bobby Cole and the, uh, yeah, I mean, they were the big stars of the uh, the European tour and, until Savvy really came on the scene in 1975. That was his first full year. And he really carried that tour from then until, you know, he lost his game really you know, in the mid-90s. And, of course, the difference between then and now is that he didn't just up and leave and go and live in Florida and play golf in America. I mean, none of the leading Europeans really play in Europe anymore. They play a few tournaments there, but I mean, Seve played the European tour, which was, his, of course, his big fight with Beeman was that Dean Beeman wanted him to play 15 tournaments in America when he was committed to playing, you know, 15 or 18 tournaments in Europe and he played in Australia and Japan and I mean, it was it was a it was a ridiculous expectation that well, you have to play 15 tournaments in America as well. So, so that fight he had with Beeman was really, you know, crazy that, um, you know, what they were asking him to do. And, but he carried that tour for, you know, he made that tour and carried it for 15 years. So, so, so he was certainly, uh, you know, a significant player in that sense. And, and I think he gave, I mean, I mean, my generation had grown up, you know, every superstar in golf was American. I mean, apart from Jack and Millie, who'd won the Open and the US Open in the 69 and 70. I mean, Nicholas and Watson and Miller and Weisskopf and Trevino and, well, I suppose Gary Player was, you know, the, the, the foreign superstar, really. But, I mean, I mean, almost every big star in golf was American. And finally, he, you know, it was a, player from an unusual part of the world who showed his generation that they too could be you know the preserve of the the top of the game wasn't solely with Americans. Yeah it's it's interesting I think like all the great American players are you know nowadays are you know you see a different type of player and 
thinking about it now, it's like, you know, Seve probably led to a somewhat of a, a Spain, like, revival of golf. You know, you, you see there are a lot of world-class Spanish players now on the European tour with Garcia, Rafa Cabrera Bello, uh, Pablo Lazarabel, and then, you know, you've yeah. got uh, John Rahm coming up through the ranks. And, you you know, I have to imagine a lot of that had to do with, you know, Seve's impact on the game and his popularity. Well, it did, but, I mean, Seve was, I mean, already when he came out, there was, I mean, Canizares and Panero and Garrido were, who were all kind of Madrid-based caddies. I mean, they're already good Spanish players, and, I mean, I mean, Sebi's brother was a good player. Uh-huh. And Mo was a decent player on the European Tour. So, you know, Sebi came out and, and they all knew he was the big star. But, I mean, Spain always had good players. You know, it's that Latin kind of flair for playing the game, which was shared with Divisenzo and, you know, sort of later Eduardo Romero and Vincente Fernandez and Angel Cabrera, who, you know, they, they play the game much differently than everyone else. They don't... They play with great flair and touch, and whilst you know they certainly didn't have bad methods, they certainly weren't as analytical as Australians or South Africans or Americans tend to be about golf and trying to perfect their golf. And they played in, in a way that reflected their character. Mm-hmm. Well, you know the character of their countries really. I mean, much more easygoing and less trying to analyse things to death and just go and play with passion and flair and get the ball in the hole and I mean Seve was the best at it but I mean I saw Di Vicenzo play when he was I mean I say he was an old man he was younger than I am now but he was sort of 57 when I saw him play at Fulford in 1980 and well he was still a great player you know as a pro in his late 50s he was a a tremendous player and Eduardo Romero was a beautiful player and Cabrera was I mean Tremendous players to watch. So you can lump the South American players and the Spanish players all in together, really, in terms of how they played the game. It's uh, it's interesting. So who, um, you know, I, I always ask this question with architecture, but in terms of kind of European tour, like who's the best player that most Americans never heard of that was on the European tour in like the 80s? Uh, well, he was he was older then, but Neil Coles was, I think. I mean, Neil Coles was a tremendous player. He, he hated to fly. He, he was on that bad Ryder Cup flight that flew into Palm Springs. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was apparently it was a wicked flight. Turbulence. You know, I mean, he, 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 he didn't fly much after that. But Neil Coles was a fantastic player. He was second in the Open to Weisskopf, tied with Miller in '73, and I mean, he won a lot of tournaments in Europe. and was a great player, really. So. so so probably Neil Coles. I mean, I mean, he was a beautiful golfer. I thought. Mm-hmm. That's the I mean, if you're a player on the European tour and you don't like to fly, you're in, you're kind of in a tough bind. Well, you can well you can drive around Europe. I mean, there's a guy whose name escapes me now. Who I shouldn't. Know. I think German guy who who, who won't fly. He drives everywhere. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you're not going to have much luck getting to the tournaments this week in Dubai, wherever they're playing. Abu Dhabi, or I'm not sure where they're playing this week, but you know, it's a long, it's a long way to drive to Australia. But <laughs> you you can easily drive the continent now. Uh-huh. Um, uh huh. But but you're right. You know, it's, if if you're not prepared to get it into an aeroplane, it makes it a tough profession to <laughs> really take full advantage of it. 
Yeah, I, I remember there was a basketball player uh, a few years back, uh, Royce White or something. He had like a extreme phobia of flying, and you know it, it cost him getting drafted very highly to you know moving back. And I, I don't I think he's out of yeah. the league now. You know, it's like you, you gotta gotta be able to fly if you want to be a professional athlete these days with all the travel. Um, so tell me, uh, you know, with the game and, you know, you've seen the, really the change with technology from, you know, persimmon to, to metal woods to now today where, you know, just, you know, the, the clubs are capped, but the ball just keeps getting better. And, you know, the more and more courses are becoming vulnerable and, and scorable. Like, how do you feel about kind of what, what's happening with the, landscape of the game with technology and golf courses well i think it's a disaster i mean i just think that you know every australia doesn't have a long golf course anymore i mean every every single golf course in australia is obsolete if the measure is how alice mckenzie and alec russell and the great designers down here wanted the golf courses to play i mean i watched the final of the australian amateur on Sunday, Minwood Lee, who's Minji Lee's brother, was in the final, 17 years old. So the argument that these guys are better athletes, I mean, here's a 17-year-old boy who played the last hole at Yarra Yarra, which was always a short par five. In my day, it was a, Bob Shearer was hitting five irons, and Greg Norman was could perhaps get there with a six iron. It was a drive and a four iron for me. This kid drove it in the cross bunkers and then hit a nine iron out of the cross bunkers 20 yards over the green. I mean, it's a par five. The 16th hole was a... Well, they played them as par fours during the week, but they played off the back tee at 16, you know, driving a wedge. So every golf course is obsolete. And you can't tell me he's not a better athlete as a 17-year-old boy than Greg Norman or Sam Snead or Jack Nicklaus were as 30-year-old men. So the argument that these guys are better athletes is... Well, you know, partly it's... I mean, sure, they're fitter and stronger, but... You know, the, 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 there are two things that matter in terms of the, the RNA's job and the USGA's job. I mean, I mean, they had two jobs. One was to protect or maintain the skill it took to play the game at the top level. And one was to protect the golf courses, and they've utterly failed at both of them. So that every kid who plays golf now who's half decent can hit the same drives but 30 yards longer than Nicholas and Norman and Woozy and Seve here. Mm-hmm. And don't tell me they're more skillful. No. And I mean, every decent golf course is obsolete. So, so you go to a place like Muirfield or Shinnecock, and you look back at where those championship tees are, and it's just—I mean, it's laughable where some of those tees are at Muirfield. And I mean, I mean, the worst—you know—for me, the best golf course in the world is the old course at St Andrews. And the worst aspect of playing that golf course now is that almost on every single hole you make the exact same walk back into the right and walk back 60 yards mm-hmm. to these tees that are out of bounds or on on the Eden course or the new course or the out of bounds in the case of the tee on the road hole 17th hole so you know it's just beyond dismaying that they've let the ball get so out of control and seemingly to me they've let the Titleist company whose balls I've always played with and they've always made great golf balls but 
you know, it seems like the boss of tightness runs golf because, as far as I can tell, they threaten lawsuits and the RNA and the USJ are terrified of lawsuits. So here we have a manufacturer controlling, you know, the way the great golf courses in the world are played. Yeah. So, you know, it was the job of the administration to protect those golf courses against the, the ravages of the, the equipment. I mean, you can't protect them against small increases. And, of course, they will argue on the record, not off the record, because they'll all admit they've screwed it up. But on the record, they'll say, well, there are only small increases. It's not really noticeable. Well, it's like saying a three-year-old kid who's, who's three feet high. It's not really noticeable that he grows his into you, but he turns into a six foot six man. <laughs> yeah. So, it's so it's little, little you know, the same thing exactly with the golf ball is that you know, sure it's you know the, the, they'll argue that well the you know, the distance increases aren't noticeable, but in the end you watch a seventeen year old boy play the last hole at Yarra Yarra with a driving a wedge. It's like don't tell me the ball's not going further. I mean, you know when Greg Norman was hitting five and six times in there, okay, I mean that was considered because because back in Peter Thompson's day. It was a drive and a three-wood or a four-wood. Mm-hmm. And, and, and back when Alec Russell built that golf course, it was a we, we, they were playing with hickory shafts and it was two woods and a pitch. Yeah. So they've just dispensed with the second wood shot and turned it into a drive and a pitch hole, which, which is, you know, I played with Ryan Ruffles the other day at Royal Melbourne, and Ryan's the best kind of young player in Australia. And we played the West Coast. We, we, we played the West Coast at Royal Melbourne. And pretty much every hole was a drive and a wedge for him. You know, it's one of the great golf courses in the world. And to watch a, you know, 18-year-old, I mean, perhaps he's a little more than a boy, but not really, hit a wedge into pretty much every hole. The 17th hole was into the wind. He hit three iron, five iron. So that played a little longer. It was a 440-yard par four. But, you know, if McKenzie came back now, he would just go ballistic at the people whose responsibility it was to protect his golf courses. Yeah, I, I, com- I, I completely agree. I think it's a, you know, and these kids now that are coming up, their swings are built where they, you know, they've never seen a, a you know, I grew up and as a freshman in high school, I was hitting the ball like 200 yards. You know, these kids hit it 300 yards as freshmen. And their swings are built around, like, you know, the forgiveness well, of the clubs. And they... So I got- they never have a bad miss. Well, the face is, you know, the face is so big, the shaft is so long and so light, and the ball goes straight because it won't spin. So, so, you know, it's all about how fast and how fast and hard you get the ball. It's all about power. So, mm-hmm. so not only does it destroy the golf courses, it drives out the inventive shorter player. So. What if you were in charge of golf? How would you deal with kind of the problem? Would you do a rollback, or would you, you know, create a different type of equipment for, you know, the touring pros or high-level amateurs? How how would you approach it? Well, I think you have to bifurcate the ball, and of course, they don't want to do that. But I mean, we had that forever. I mean, we were, I mean, I grew up playing the ball ball when. Americans play with the big ball, we play with the small ball. So, so the game was bifurcated for the longest time, for 40 or 50 years. And then we, we as top-level amateurs, chose to play the big ball because if we ever wanted to be pros, we knew we were going to have to play with it. So for six or seven years, 
the Pro Tour in Australia and the top level amateurs playing the big ball, whilst the club players continued on with the small ball until the early 80s when they, you know, the small ball was banned. So it will say that, well, well, you can't, you know, change the ball and take this distance off the average amateur player. But, but I mean, they've already done that once and, it, and it, no one really cared. No one, no one even, because I actually don't think they would lose that much. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with the stroke of a pen in, you know, in 1983 or 84, when they banned the small ball in Britain and Australia, in theory, everyone that game lost 25 yards because they went from playing a 1.6 ball to a 1.68 ball. Um, so do you think outside of rolling back the ball, is there anything else you could do? Well, I mean, the argument's always going to be that the amateurs want to play with what the pros use, but I mean, I would try and restore the skill it took to be a great driver. So you make a, more, a ball that's more difficult to drive far and straight and and you limit the size of the club on the driver, which, of course, they should have done years ago but never did. So when the manufacturers figured out how to make a you know, head like a frying pan and make it light and make it so it didn't crack, then you know, you know, there was almost no limit on the size of the driver. So... so I would I would try and limit the size of the driver. I understand. So really, the ball's the thing to change. But I mean, Seve was an advocate of. I mean, you could have on a wedge. I mean, it's never going to happen. But I would say that every pro should have to use a Mizuno or a Titus or some sort of blade, two iron or one iron. I mean, at least have one in their bag. So essentially, the guys who don't want to use it, you're making it a thirteen type game, not a fourteen type game. But I mean, I think if you want to be a professional player, somebody you can hit a problem too on. I mean, don't, this hybrid stuff is just junk for golf, you know, for top-level pros, but um, that's kind of pie-in-the-sky stuff, really. But but <laughs> the ball's the easiest and the main thing to fix. And if I was a good player, I'd be wanting to make the equipment as difficult to use as possible. And, you know, the real problem, or one of the problems with the game now has been kind of the complete decimation of career-type amateur golf. There are no career amateur players left anymore. I mean, I mean, every amateur tournament I go to, you know, certainly in Australia and Britain, it's just a bunch of kids who want to be pros. So, because the equipment has given them all the same set of skills. They, they all look like they're really good players because the equipment makes them look like really good players. And, and, and some of them are, and some of them are just kind of faking it because the equipment makes them look good so you know what the equipment has done is thrown thousands and thousands of kids into the pile of you know the same skill set really whereas you know when I was growing up the guys who could really drive the ball well you know the guys who could drive the Ballada ball with a persimmon driver well I mean Nicholas and Wisdom and Seve, despite what people think, was a great driver. Norman, I mean, they had a huge Weisskopf, they had a huge advantage because they were such powerful, long straight drivers. And you know, you either drove the ball like you know, the guys I grew up admiring, like Peter Thompson, Graham Master, Halo, and you were, you know, a short, relatively short straight hitter who who picked the ball up and put it into play, or you were long and crooked, or you were long and great. Mm-hmm. But now everyone's long and straight and. You know, so the skill it takes to drive the ball has been utterly decimated by the equipment. 
And, and and I would argue that hasn't done the average player any good either because the ball goes, you know, for them, you see so many more wildly crooked shots. You know, the, the club, you can swing so much harder at it and, and, and the middle of the face is so much easier to hit. But if it's pointing in the wrong direction, the ball goes miles offline now. Well, something I found just it just bothers me is the length of the driver you know where you look at the average length of a tour driver it's gone up one inch over the last you know 15 years and somehow club manufacturers because you know they've got a limit on their you know how they can construct a golf club have decided to go after the average amateur player and do it by giving them more yardage by making a longer driver but all that yeah. does is it makes it go longer and way in way worse directions. You know, if if a longer driver meant longer and straighter drives, every PGA Tour player would be using it, but none of them do. Uh, that, was it Jimmy Walker that went back to a 42-inch driver in Hawaii or something? Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like, length is great, but you got to be in the fairway to score. Yeah. So, you know, when... It, yeah, you know, it sounds like we're a bunch of grumpy old men you know, talking about the good old days, but, but um, I wish I was old. Yeah. I'm young. <laughs> yeah, I'm just grumpy. Yeah, the average amateur player, I mean, they were you know the guys I caddied for, they didn't have very many good shots, but well, the, the first folks I caddied for were 25 handicappers, but they all hit the ball pretty straight, and I mean, no one hit the ball. They would miss hit it a lot, but they never hit it really crooked. I mean, now you see the average amateur can they hit the ball so far offline. Now it's amazing because the shafts are so long and you know they swing harder and it look, you know it looks like you can swing away with impunity. And of course, they'll hit six or you know four, three or four or five really good drives around. But boy, there are three of them just you, you don't find. Yeah. So anyway, it's uh. Let's get off the equipment. <laughs> so yeah, so caddying. Uh, you caddied uh, this year in the Olympics. Tell us a little bit about that experience and. Uh... Um, how you know what it was like, you know, being a part of representing your country. Well, I'm not sure I was representing my country. Well, I mean, you had a part. You're you're part of the yeah. team. I guess we were kind of were. Um, <laughs> as a kid at a club, a girl called Sue O, who's a Korea, came to Australia when she was eight years old, didn't play golf, and she played in the Australian Open when she was twelve. I, I can remember watching her play. I watched her play a few holes. And, was this twelve-year-old? You know, she wasn't a little girl. She was actually, you know, she was sort of five foot five or something. But she was, it was this twelve-year-old kid playing in the Australian Open. She qualified and she missed the cut, but not by many. And then I, she joined the club I played at about sort of three or four years later, I think. And we got to play a little bit. And she called me one night, and she'd been assigned to caddy for the Australian Open at Victoria about two thousand and fourteen. She said, what should I do? I said, why don't I caddy for you? So I started to caddy for a little bit, and you know, we, we did sort of three or four or five tournaments a year. And then last year she had a pretty lowly – she missed the top 25 on the, the LPGA Tour School in two, the end of 15, 2015, but she, she had a number that gave her some status, which was basically not much, but she was starting the Australian Open, and we did that, and she finished 14th. and. She off her number and she finished 40th there, okay, for her there. So she re ranked really well. And 
and finished second at Kings Mill and eighth in the LPGA. Not Co Webb, amazingly, out of the Australian Olympic team. So she asked me to go to MK for her down there, which was it was a lot of fun. It, you know, it was a really cool event. It was great to be a part of. It was fun to see her play in it. It was um, great to Gil Hans walked around the course with us on the first practice run we did, and so that was interesting. It was interesting for her to see, you know, how he thought about how he would design the holes because obviously I was. I mean, I think as I mean, I'm not sure how many 19-year-old young women are that aware of the strategy of golf. It's pretty much hit the ball where, you, where you're told to hit it and go from point A to point, point B. But sort of kind of growing up in Melbourne and played, a, knew there was more to golf than just see the ball straight. So you know, we, we had a really cool day on Monday with Gill and walking around talking about the golf course and the angles. And you know, she there's a great old George Thomas quote about. Um, sorry, not George Thomas, Tom Simpson, quote about the middle of the fairway being the ideal line for the hole. And, you know, sadly, many PGA Tour courses, the object is just to hit the fairway. It doesn't matter where you hit it, but, mm-hmm. you know, the fairway's narrow in line with high rough, and it's not the sort of golf I enjoy much. But, you know, Royal Melbourne, and of course, the fairways are 60 or 70 yards wide, but it depends. You know, to play the golf course really well, you had to play from the So, you know, she had a good understanding of playing for the edges and opening up the angles. And so it was an interesting, fun four days to play the golf course. She played pretty well, really. She, it was my, she, she hit the, rarely if ever does she hit the wrong shot and the wrong club. And we got to the 13th hole on Sunday with, oh, not a, Unreasonable chance to go. She had to par 13, 14, 15, and birdie the last three. Birdie the last three was very possible given the nature of those holes. And 13 was the toughest hole, and she had a kind of a dodgy number. It was sort of between a five iron and a, and a lofted hybrid. She hit the wrong club and for letting it hit it because I kind of knew it was, and I, and I should have stopped it. But you know, I shoot over the back of the green, got a horrible line in the bunker, and made six, and that was that. But but she played well, finished 13th, and, uh, and it was a really interesting week for her. It was a good confidence boost, and it was, um, you know, kind of, she, she finished up the year 50th on the day, the LPG, and we started the year pretty much not based at all. So, so it was a, know, for me, it was a fun. Yeah, um, it's interesting. You, you talked about the architecture and, you know, how width and being more about being on the correct side of the fairway as opposed to the, you know, just down the middle is kind of your yeah. your belief. I, I think that that is so, you know, lost in it. And I think it, the angles is what, you know, made so many of these, um, you know, golden age courses great. Um, and it's something that got kind of lost there in the middle. Do you feel, I feel like you, along with a lot of the, New Age architects are trying to bring that back. Well, yeah, you know, you can't have. Well, you can, but it's very difficult to create strategy if you don't have any width. Mm-hmm. So you know, you look at the old course of standards, which is basically two fairways wide with bunkers in the middle, and you know the National Golf Links and sort of Sand Hills in Nebraska. You know the great 
the first great modern course, really. And you, you look at what Mike Kaiser's done at Bandon and out at Sand Valley, and what Gill did at Castle Stewart in Scotland, and you know, some of the courses we've done here. You know, I, I love playing golf when you've got to work. And then you must hit the ball there. And if you don't, you get this. You get six-inch rough on the side of the fairway and six-inch rough around the greens. That's what you get. So as Seve said, you know, it's very, in his Spanish way, very mechanic-type golf. And it is. You know, it's why Seve, you know, he was, he was the only man who ever won at St Andrews, Augusta, and Royal Melbourne. And, and no surprise given that, you know, it was Mackenzie's fun favourite course and, and, and arguably his certainly probably two, two of his best three courses along with Cypress Point and perhaps Crystal Downs but you know, here was a and, and you read the spirit of Andrews and he loved it Walter Hagen played golf and here 50 or 60 years later was you know Walter Hagen reincarnated in Seve Ballesteros so, you know they played golf with flair and carefree abandon and but you had to give them space to play. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't, you kind of blunted their skills. And sure, you could criticise Seve for not being a, you know, not having the game to win the US Open, but, and that's fine because that was the preserve of someone like Hale Irwin who played the perfect US Open game. You know, so, and, and that's the great thing about golf is you can have a golf course and a championship that's set up to suit a Hale Irwin or a Ben Hogan or a Jack Nickers. But you can also have championships set up to suit someone like Ballesteros or, or, or Hagen who needed more space. But once you gave him that space, it was a... Yeah. So the great thing about golf is that you know different golf courses show off different skill sets. And, and again, equipment, that's what's been with the... Which really forces everyone to go the same way. Yeah, I, uh, because you can't. It's much, it's much more difficult to curve the ball, and you can't. You know, usually a powerful player. You know, so, so the game has utterly changed in the last twenty years, really. Yeah, I, uh, I, I completely agree. It's a, you know the kind of art of uh, working the ball and different ways of getting it done are, are diminishing every every uh, year. Um, so. With uh, with your design firm that you guys started, so it's um, OCCM for short. Uh, it's you, Jeff Ogilvy, Mike Cocking, and uh, Ashley Mead. Tell us a little bit about how you guys got together and started. Was it kind of just like minds, and uh, you know uh, how it got started, and you know a little bit about this company? Well, it was like minds. Well, I started off. We I started off a business. Well. I didn't start it off. There were two of my partners in the, in the original business, which was Michael Clayton Golf Design. There were two superintendents in Melbourne came to me and asked me if I was interested in starting off a business in, in design in 1995, and we, and we did that. And we employed Michael and Ashley in 2000, I think, or 2001, pretty much around the same time. So that business survived until it didn't survive anymore in 2010. Uh-huh. When... You know, it was a sign of the times. It was the market really telling us that 
you, know, you need to run your bit your business more yeah you know, we it was sort of 15 years really and we one year where well we can't pay the wages anymore so so we did what well the business went the way of the business so i called jeff and said you know this is a situation we need some money and he didn't even think about it for well he thought about it for a second i think and said i oh, mean that's great you know so so jeff came on board he sent us some money he said go start an office and let, let, let's get going so so so, so, so we kind of started in 2010 and we picked up one really good job almost immediately at Sydney, which was a big redo, which we're about to, we're about to open the stage three in about two months, which is, uh, we've got three holes to do in, in stage four. So it was, so we're opening sort of, sort of five holes in a month. So you know, we got that job and we, we sort of, Bombed along and got a few more. We, you know, we beat Greg Norman to get a big commission to beat uh, to rid the Royal Camper, which is the best inland course in Australia. So that was a nice job to get. Uh, you know, we've kind of you know, done pretty well since, really. You know, I think we've done some good work. With I mean, really, people. If I agree when I think about our business. I mean, that would underrate the, the tremendous talents of Mark and Ashley, who are really. I mean, Jeff one day a few years ago came to me and said, We'd be screwed without these guys, wouldn't we? I said, Yeah, we would. So, you know, you look at every really good design business around the world now, and, and you know, whether it's Gil Hans or Tom Doak or Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw, but the, there are really talented people who work for those guys who who make them and us all look really good so it would be an incredibly simplistic thing to look at the names of the people at the top of the letterhead and think they were the ones who were doing all the work and they were the ones that were really responsible for the work because it goes much deeper than that yeah you know if you spoke to bill core he would tell you all the guys who make him look really good and 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 he's you know, I think you can make an argument that Bill is one of the great designers of all time, you know, if not the greatest. You know, I think at this point, if you were going to put one guy up against Mackenzie and Tillinghast and Ross, then it would be Bill Core because he's a, you know, look at the courses that he and Ben have done. They've really transformed the modern game, I think. And Sandhills was a breakthrough golf course. It showed everyone what to do and, you know, any modern actor who hasn't studied the Sandhills is, you know, their education is sort of deficient in one sense. And, you know, I was lucky enough to play Sam Valley, which is the new course they've just yeah. done out in Wisconsin. And, you know, in some ways I was talking to Mark about, not Mark Cockney about today, was, you know, in some ways it's when you talk about corn Crenshaw courses, it's, you could, you could say, well, they're all kind of the same, but, and in a sense they are, but yeah, yeah they're all the same. They're just all great. And, yeah. and you know you, you can recognise that look and the type of golf they like and the type of golf they build. And you, you know, if, if you were going to be critical of them, which I'm certainly not, you could say, well, you've seen one, you've seen a few of them, but you know, every single course you go to, well, well, you can see that Bill and Ben have done it, but they're all tremendous, tremendous golf courses. And I, I, you can say the same about Alistair McKenzie, really. I mean, Augusta, and, I mean, people talk about, you know. The, there's this stupid line in Australia that 
you know, such and such a golf course is as straight as Augusta and it used to be Royal Canberra because it, because it was hilly and it had pine trees and it was a, there's a course in northern New South Wales that people call Australia's Augusta because it's got it's got green grass on it, I think. But, um, you know, I mean, you know, as Tom Doug said, Augusta's, um, Royal Melbourne's the course Augusta wants to be. <laughs> so Augusta is almost America's Royal Melbourne's. That's the way I kind of look at it. But, um, you know, the lessons of golf designer, golf designer, timeless really I mean you look at Royal Melbourne Augusta and St Andrews and you know, I think people you know the guys who are doing really good work now look look at those courses and study them and understand them and try and replicate the things that make those courses great and and, and the great modern courses are throwbacks to that era really yeah I I think I I'm, I echo your thoughts about Corbin Crenshaw I, you know Sand Valley was unbelievable that's a great new golf course and then i just got done playing stream song red and i thought that was fantastic i mean the way they i i just love the way they are able to blend playability and then you know i noticed like all the lot you know it's all about angles and you know being the ideal line for somebody that's looking to score is always along you know there's a risk to taking that line and you can always bail out right but then you have just usually a very, very difficult shot to get back and, you know, to have a birdie chance. Um, yeah. And I, I just, it, it's amazing when you start to play them and you start to realize, like, you know, the ideal line on this hole is a, you know, 480-yard par four is right hugging a, you know, is hugging the left side of the fairway where there's a 30-foot bunker. You know, and sure, you yeah. can ba- you've got 60 yards to bail out right, but then you, you've got a, just an awful angle into a green that slopes away. And, it, and it's just brilliant. It's, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's special, you know, when you can start to see that. Yeah, and it's, and it's not, uh, I mean, Bill would be, would be the first to admit, I mean, this is not rocket science, this stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just replicating the 17th pole at Royal Melbourne or, or the road holes in Andrews or, you know, it's not... You know, it's not like they've discovered anything new. It's just you know, they put it beautifully on the ground, and you know they choose projects where the land is great. That they just build great golf, and, it, and it's not anything genius or anything new. It's just you know, it's just beautiful golf they build, and it's great fun to play. And yes. you know, I mean, Fry's had a tremendous golf course. I've, I've played there a couple of times, and it's a it's a beautiful place to play golf. And you know, I wonder whether they really care about. You know the modern young player who's the ball three hundred twenty yards. I mean, yeah, you, know, you know, I suspect Bill would throw his hands up and say, "Well, I'm glad I'm not trying to design golf courses for those guys," mm-hmm. because, you know, as Jeff said many times, he said, "Why would you want to design a course for us? Because no one would want to play it." And that's true. I mean, who, who wants to play a golf course that's going to test those guys? Because no one else can play it. And and who wants to play a golf course where there are tees back there that are eighty yards back and everything's out of scale and nothing seems quite right because there are these you know, where do we play from? I mean, it's just, it's, you know, again, it goes back to the disaster of the ball and what it's done to the game. And, you know, I kind of like the fact that Mike Kaiser and Bill and Ben and, you know, Gil uh, don't really care about how, how, 
you know, the, the young, the young modern strong player plays the game because it's not, you know, they're not designing courses for those guys. They're you know designing fun courses for the rest of the people who play golf. But but I always think the game would be more fun for the young kids if they could play the golf courses much more like the way we play them. Mm-hmm. But yeah. they can't because. Yeah, you go, go back to the Australian Amateur game. I mean, it was a it was a pitch and putt final, really. Mm-hmm. Hey, so, so we, yeah. we got Sorry, a, go ahead. we got a ton of Twitter questions, and I I definitely want to get to them because uh, you know we just got a lot of great ones here. Um, so uh, and a lot of them are based around architecture. Um, so I think it'd be good to dive in here, and it, it can some of them are on your projects. Um, so, um, from Tony uh, Deer, what's the latest on Seven Mile Beach, and what's the schedule at Shady Oaks? Well, Seven Mile Beach is the course in Hobart we were talking about. So, so you know, it's one of those things that you just kind of sit and wait, and you hope that the guy who's going to do it's going to do it. Uh-huh. And, and I think we're all pretty hopefully is. So we're sitting and waiting and wanting for the the client to say, "Yep, let's go and do it." But so that, so that's where that one's at. Uh-huh. Um, Shady Oaks, we're doing the Hogan's kind of little practice course, little nine-hole course in, in the middle of the golf course where, where Hogan used to go and practice, which was a really rudimentary par three course with one short par four and I mean, just little basic round greens with shapeless bunkers. And so we we did three holes last year, and, and as we speak, we're shaping the the six remaining holes. So it's kind of a, you know, with some really cool, I mean, I mean, nothing sort of flashy bunkers, but, you know, some well-shaped bunkers, some cool greens, some, with, with the idea that it's still a nine-hole par three course, but you can really go out and throw a bag of balls down anywhere and, and play great shots to any green, and you can play great holes from wherever you choose to play them from. So the ninth was a kind of a par three across a, across a kind of a gouged out sort of creaky baranca thing in front of the green but we're building a, a tee on the other side of the fourth fairway mm-hmm. to create what is a really cool 360 yard par four with, with, with a great you know perfectly placed fairway bunker and a, and a really cool hole to place so when the course is not busy you know if you want to go out and practice your drives or go and play a hole you know, a really cool hole you can do that so the, the idea is to have the golf limited only by your imagination, really. So, so throw balls down anywhere and hit shots to any green. And plus, it's a course where you could take any six or seven or eight year old kid and teach them how to play golf. Yeah. I so, think- you know, you, you know, there's no reason why you couldn't learn to be a a tour class player playing only those nine holes, but because there'll be every shot you can imagine to play. I, I think that apart from playing shots out of long grass, which there'll be there'll be none of that, so you might have to learn how to play out of long grass by going somewhere else. But but you know it's a it's a um it's a really cool place to practice it's, and a cool place to play. And then they closed the main course to, to, to rebuild it in two thousand and I think nineteen is the plan. So, so um, they'll just shut the main course for a year and we'll re- rebuild it. That's cool. So, so it's a you know, it's a cool place to work. I mean, when Ben Hogan died, he left he, he left every club he had to the club pro there, Mike Wright. I mean, there are 900 clubs lying around that, well, not lying around that golf club, but in racks and sitting around the pro shop. And it's 
such an amazing place to go really and just look around at the history of that place is incredible so, so it's a it's a fun place to work and Bruce Devlin's a member there who you know, he was one of my you know along with Peter Thompson he was the you know they were my two heroes when I when I was a 12 year old kid I mean you, you would go and watch they were the two guys to watch in Australia play golf and Devlin would come out and play in Australia every year and I I watched him play a lot of golf and I played with him when I was an amateur in the Australian Open sort of 10 years after I first watched him play in the Australian Open at Kingston Heath and so, so you know it's kind of cool to go back there and meet him as a I want to say he's an old man he's probably 80 years old but he looks tremendous for his age and a, you know it's a funny journey through life that you you know you've kind of come across someone who it was your boyhood hero really and here he is a, a, a you know, member of a golf club that you're going to dig up and rebuilds so in a sense it's fun and in a sense it's a pretty big responsibility not to mess it up yeah i mean it that's so cool i i love the concept with the nine hole course i think that is exactly what golf should be i, I was talking to somebody uh, who runs a first tee program and i was saying how you know their facilities should just be places with wall-to-wall fairways and a few greens, yeah. bunkers, and just let the kids learn how to get the ball in the hole and tee it up wherever they want and play, you know, golf that way. Yeah. It's, and it's really the dream practice for I mean, Sue O, Sue's a member there. And, and you know, we from the seventh tee, you can hit a straight sort of seven-iron shot, but you can, you can stay on that tee and hit a long draw into the second green and a long fade into the third green. You know, sort of 170 or 80 yard shots or 90 yard shots so you can stand there for hours and practice you know the three basic shots in golf the, the straight shot the, the draw shot and the fade shot and you know, you're playing shots in a beautiful greens it's a beautiful environment and it's really as i said there's no reason why you know a kid couldn't learn to be a scratch player just playing that nine hole golf course because there'll be every shot they want mm-hmm. that's cool um so, a uh, question from Nick Mackey. Um, what's the trend in modern design you'd like to see it go away? And what's your favorite course in, Austra- in uh, Oz outside of Melbourne? So, I assume that's Australia, right? Uh, yeah. Um, the trend in modern design you'd like to see it go away. Well, my, I'm huge on, the, on, on modern design. I, mean, I think there's. You could argue that since Sandhills has been the most productive period of golf course design ever. I mean, perhaps even better than the golden age from what 1913 to 1930 Augusta, really. So you know, certainly I think it rivals it. So you know, I'm I'm huge on the 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 quality of modern design. I mean, I think that in terms of modern television golf, the curse of long grass. I just I. Don't think that golf is best played out, out of long grass. I mean, I mean it's what tour pros want because they want predictability of punishment. They want to know that if someone hits the ball offline, they get the same punishment they do for the same shot. And you know, I mean, golf's much more fun when the punishment is random. And dealing with the unfairness of golf or the lucky break or the you know the good the good or the bad break is, I mean, that's the whole mental challenge of the game. Is so. You know, I think that pro golf has sanitized the game down to the a point where you know, you know it's really a test of execution as opposed to a 
test of thought and execution. So modern televised golf, you know, if I was going to change that, I would, I would change the the emphasis on fairness and 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 the, the use of long grass to to create an equity of punishment because I don't think the best courses do that. You know, I think golf is much more random than that. Uh, my favourite course in Australia outside of Melbourne, um, well, probably, I mean, the course of Bumbugal, the, the Bill Calls course at Lost Farm and the course we did with Tom Doker, courses I've got a great affection for. Um, yeah, courses outside of... Um, tricky. It's a tricky question for me because we actually... We've been lucky enough to work in the best course in Perth, the best course in Brisbane, and one of the best two or three courses in Sydney. So it's difficult to answer that question without nominating one of our own courses. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm, let me pick a course in New Zealand. Um, apart from Paraparam Beach, which is a course that like Russell did, there's a really cool course called Arrowtown in, in Queenstown. Now, Queenstown has become a bit of a centre of um, high-end expensive golf. It's, I think the Jack's Point and the Hills are probably green fees somewhere between two, three, or four hundred. I think the Hills is five hundred dollars, but mm-hmm. Jack's Point might be two hundred. But there's a really cool little course called Arrowtown, which is right down the road from the Hills, which is about forty bucks a round, and it's a tremendous little course. So anyone who goes to South Island. Uh, of New Zealand, go to Arrowtown. It's one of the most unique golf courses in the world. So if I was to pick a favourite golf course outside of Melbourne in Australia, let me pick Arrowtown in New Zealand, which is kind of cheating, but yeah. anyone who happens to go to Queenstown, do not miss playing at Arrowtown because you can get you can get 10 rounds, 10 rounds for the price of one. And I promise you, you'll have 10 times more fun. It's a really, you know, it's a, it's a much over word, I overused word unique, but it's a truly unique golf course, and you know it's a course that everyone should see. That's that's awesome. I love that it's a great value. It's finding those gems are are the most fun. Yeah. You know, playing the best courses are the are great, but when you find like a really great little unique gem that nobody knows about, that's really great. Is the is, I I think that's the most fun about discovering yeah. golf courses. Um. Let's go with uh, here. Which course would you most like to renovate or restore? Uh, in Australia? Um, anywhere. Anywhere. Anywhere? Um, well, let me. That's another interesting question. Um, if someone had asked me that question, well, people did ask me that question often. And always the answer was Royal Canberra. So uh, normally my answer would be Royal Canberra, except that we did get the chance to do that. And we mm-hmm. opened it, Jeff and I opened it the Monday of the Australian Open <laughs> this year. So that, that was always my stock answer, but we actually got to do that once. So um, it's a, um, let me come back to that one. I'll... I'll I'll think about it over the next five minutes and come back with a better answer then. Um, but because, you know, all the all of the great courses in Britain that I really loved, there wasn't one that you ever went to and thought, wow, this would be a great course if you could only fix it. Yeah. You know, there were many examples in Australia of courses that I thought, 
it's be a really good course if you could fix it. And we've been lucky enough to have the chance to fix a few of them. But not every member would say that. But you know, I would use that fix adjective. Yeah. But you know, you go to Britain and, and you see um, you know, how many great golf courses there are in, in, in England, and you think, you know, I never cross it. I never came across a course there where, well, perhaps one Wentworth. Let me throw in Wentworth in there because, yeah. wow, that was a you know a Harry Colt course that. Um, got derailed. You know, so it we're not going to get the job at Wentworth. But you know, I think if someone could, for want of use of a better cliche, make Wentworth great again, that <laughs> would be a pretty cool job to do for someone. So someone's. I'm not sure who's going to do that, but Wentworth would be. You know, in terms of English golf courses, that would be right at the top of the list. Yeah, it's uh, you know players don't even like playing there. It seems like. Um... So here's a here's an interesting question um, from Chris. Why is it? And I know he goes down to Australia almost every year. Why is it that nowhere else can seem to replicate the Australian sand bunk uh, belt bunkering? Um, and for those that don't know or are familiar with it, green uh, he says greens bleed in right into the bunkers without fringe, and the faces of the bunkers are very hard. Well, you can replicate, the, I think, the, the, the taking of the very edges of the greens to the bunkers. I mean, I mean certainly in lots of places you can do that, not everywhere. But I mean, the thing about sandbelt bunkers, I mean, I think it's a, it's a unique combination of the, the type of the sand and, and, and the soil that they're built out of it and, and how the cooch grass roots hold the lips together. But... My answer to that question would be: I don't think you want to. And I've seen people try and replicate sandbelt bunkers in other places, and it doesn't really work. And I think Gil got really close in Rio and did a great job and built beautiful bunkers down there. And I know he based the look of those bunkers; he based them on the sandbelt bunkers, but he didn't try and you know exactly replicate them because I think attempts at trying to replicate that look, I mean, they all fail. Mm-hmm. You know, they just don't work very well. So I'm kind of a supporter of leaving sandbelt bunkers to Melbourne and not trying to replicate that look because I think, you know, they really work well in Melbourne but don't work that well anywhere else. And perhaps you can kind of – I mean, people try and build them and try and get that look, but it's never quite the same. So so I think that, you know, we don't try and replicate it anywhere else but in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. So – and we're pretty good at doing them, I think. So for other people to try and replicate them is – not a great idea because it's very difficult to do and it never really works. Yeah. So, you know, you know, I think you can replicate the principles of them, but to try and replicate the exact look doesn't really work. But but, but, but one thing that's really, you know, works, I mean, the Metropolitan where I play is, you know, people marvel at the fact there is no, no I mean, literally no fringe at all. And we're re- rebuilding the two courses at Peninsula now. And, you know, you know the, the edges of the greens go right to the very edge of the bunkers and it makes it, you know, it makes it, you know, it's a really cool feature, and it works really well. But you don't see it anywhere else in the world, really. And, and it's you know, where it's possible to do it, it, it. It's really worth trying to do. Yeah, it's. Uh, I imagine a lot of the soil. It, it it's so much goes into that. Um, so yeah. let's let's do some kind of rapid fire questions that are parts of uh, all these uh, questions we got here. So. Um, 
How do you like template holes? Uh, well, I think every hole is a copy of something. Yeah. Largely, you know, unless you're finding a really unique form of land. I, I mean, I enjoyed, you know, the National Golf Links, I suppose, was the first template golf course, you know, with all those holes that, that McDonald went and copied from Britain. So, so I think uh, they work really well. You know, you know, if you do them well, they're, they're, they're tremendous to play. So, you know, the quintessential dog leg left hole in Australia is the 17th at Royal Melbourne with a bunker on the inside corner and, you know, the big of the drive, the, you know, the, 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 the big bunker coming across the front right of the green uh, and the green where every every yard you drive away from the, the hazard on the, on the left, you know, a yard harder the second shot. And, and that hole is replicated all over Melbourne, the 15th at Metropolitan, the second at Spring Valley. There are a whole bunch of holes at Melbourne that, the replicas of the, of the 17th at Royal Melbourne. So, you know, I think if you're designing, a, I mean, we're always thinking of holes we've played before and holes we like and holes that work. And, uh, you, you know, so I think in terms of what we do and what other designers do, I think they're always replicating the principles of the great holes. So, so you know, the road hole at St Andrews is, it, you know, it's a, it's a dog to the right, really, with with the bunker on the front left of the green. But you know, it's really not much different from the you know, it's a flip of the segment. Well, the 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 segment that Royal Melbourne is a flip of the road hole, really. You know, again, it's mm-hmm. drive it down the boundary line, and every yard left of the boundary line you go a yard more problematic the second shot. So, so you know, it goes back to what we were talking about before about there being nothing new in golf course design, really, and. Mm-hmm. Now, I played a course this morning at Portsea, which is a really fun course out of Melbourne with, with some incredibly unique landforms and holes you won't see see anywhere else. But, you know, in the end, if you've got a, a, a standard-ish sort of piece of land, then you're always going to replicate the principles of the great holes. Yeah. So, template holes work pretty well, really, for me. I agree. I mean, it's you get in trouble when you try and reinvent the wheel, right? Yeah. Yeah, you do. <laughs> So, uh, what? Who would you say is the most underappreciated architect? While in Australia, Alec Russell was, who was Australian Open champion. He was a wealthy kind of grazier, really, and he worked in politics a little bit. But he was, um, he was Mackenzie's partner down in Australia. He, he did the East Coast at Royal Melbourne, Yarra Yarra, Lake Karen up and. Parapuram in New Zealand, so he, he didn't do many golf courses. He was a really a part-time architect in a sense, but he did some tremendous work down here. Mm-hmm. So you know, Russell was great in this part of the world. I mean, I, I'm not sure if Tom Simpson's underrated, but I mean, Morfontaine is you know it, it'll be one of my you know top five or ten days out playing golf in in the world. It's an, an incredible golf course that. Simpson did so. Simpson's perhaps is you know someone who doesn't get due credit for the the greatness of his work, but you know I always love playing his courses. I heard there's a new book out about Simpson that's really good. I haven't had. Yeah, there is. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Um, Yeah. What uh, of the courses you've designed? Which are the uh, which are you most proud of? And that's from Alistair. 
Um, well, I mean, we did Bamboo with Tom and I, Tom Doak, and I think you know that's a been a pretty successful development and a fun course to play. But the course we've done on our, on our own, that's I mean, mostly our work's been redesigned. We've done a couple. Mm-hmm. I mean, ran fairly was a new golf course, and, and Royal Queensland was basically a new golf course. They lost six holes, and, uh, and we basically rebuilt the entire golf course on that original piece of land. But you know, it's easy to just to sort of alert to the last job you did. But I, mean, I thought we did a great job at Royal Canberra. Uh, I, mean, I think that was a it was a very pretty place to play golf. It was a nice environment. The course was in good condition. But in truth, I never thought it was much of a golf course. It was once rated fifth in Australia, and I think it had kind of slid down the rankings to about where it should have been, which was about 50 or 60. And a friend of mine who is a young kid, but who... Um, Lived, he spent six months at St. Andrews University last year doing um, a, a, a part of his engineering degree over there. Golf course, not that lot, and he thought about golf courses like a lot, and he, and he played he played Royal Canberra the other day, and he rang up uh, driving out the gate and said, wow, he said, it's really good. So, you know, it's always nice to get the opinion of someone who's seen it for the first time and who, who actually got it. Uh, and you know, I think we did a pretty good job there. So I, so I would say, the you know the work we've done. I think Royal Canberra was a really good job and turned out really well. That's cool. It's always nice, I'm sure, to hear praise from somebody that's got a good eye for golf courses. Yeah, yeah. Um, last question. Um, really appreciate all the time. Um, if you had five courses that you could play the rest of your life. And, you know, obviously, location, is, you know, assume all five are in your backyard. What five would they be? Uh, five, of course. Uh, More Fontaine, I would play. I would play Woking. I would play... Uh, I would play Sandhills. I would play the National Golf Links, and I would play Royal Melbourne. How's that for five? I mean... That's kind of the unanswerable question, but I'm tr- you try and create as much variety, variety in the yeah. golf. Well, well, yeah, you know, that's ridiculous because I leave out the old course. I can't <laughs> leave out the old course. So, give me six, and the old course would be number one. But you know, I love playing golf at Morfontein because I'm a, I love it's the most beautiful clubhouse in the world, and the, we have a drink in Australia which I never, which I haven't had for years: orange juice and lemonade, and you know, it was a drink I had a lot when I was a kid, and, we, and I played with Billy Lomia, a great friend of mine who played the European Tour for years. We went to Morfontaine, and it was a hot day, and for some reason, we went to this into you know, the bar, and I said, "Do you have orange and lemonade?" And this little French lady who just happened to be behind the bar reached down under the bar, pulled out an orange, cut it in half, hand squeezed it, and poured it with lemonade. And it's like, any club does that, that's going to be the best place in the world to play golf. So. So, Morfontaine, the old course, I mean, I'll probably give you a different answer now, but Morfontaine, the old course, working because it's such an understated, cool little golf course, it's great fun. Um, Sandhills, because it's the great modern course. National Golf Links, because it was the first great course in America. And I can't remember the last one. Oh, Royal, Royal Melbourne. Uh, Royal Melbourne, because I've, you know, because it was where I, 
you know, I watched all the great players play there. I played a lot of tournaments there. I, you know, I was, I'm still, you know, it's the one course that I, I, mean, I played there last week, and, and it's the one course I, I, I can play after 45 years and still, I, I'm, one, I'm in awe of the golf course, and I'm, I'm coming, I'm kind of in awe of the fact that it's in my backyard, really. Yeah. And 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 it's literally in Jeff Ogilvie's backyard. If you hit a long hook off the 14th tee on the west course, you land in Jeff Ogilvie's house. <laughs> so so he, you know, he, he's the luckiest guy in the world. He, I mean, he literally jumps the back fence and plays the back paddock at Royal Melbourne. So there aren't many cooler places to live than that. Yeah, seriously. It's uh, I, I'm guessing you're still learning little things about the course every round around. It's uh, that's usually the sign of a great course, right? It is. Yeah, it is. It's um, all right. Well, hey, you know, I, I want to get you out of here. I know it's probably midnight there now, and uh, I I really appreciate the time. A, a great guest, and we'll have to have you on again. I uh, I feel like we only scratched the surface about the things we could talk about. Okay, thanks, Andy. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, definitely. And uh, thanks again. Bye. Thanks, mate.